Hello and welcome to part three of the Star Wars Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm Scott Harvey and I'm joined by my co-hosts for this series, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today we will be saying our goodbyes to the prequel trilogy as we discuss Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Released in 2005, Revenge of the Sith is set three years after the events of Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. With Christopher Lee's Count Dooku still at large, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker, played again by Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen, are sent in to strike a decisive blow for the Republic in the ongoing conflict. Obi-Wan has become one of the Jedi Council's most trusted emissaries, but Anakin, despite sitting on the Council, still remains in the cold as the Jedi Masters grow wary of, his close, of the close bond Anakin has formed with the shadowy Chancellor Sheev Palpatine, played, by, played again by Ian McDermott. What the Jedi don't know, however, is what we see at the end of Episode 2. Anakin and Padme, played by Natalie Portman, have eloped, and now Padme is pregnant. Faced with the distressing visions of harm coming to Padme and his future child, Anakin must make a life-altering decision to either stay with the Jedi or give in to the seductive pull of the dark side. Before we get into specifics, Scott, I want to start with you as the uh, Star Wars veteran here. What did you remember about your first experience with Revenge of the Sith going into this movie? Well, Scott, on the last episode, you talked about how Attack of the Clones, or uh, maybe you remember both of them from theaters, but this is the first Star Wars movie that I think I saw in theaters, or at least the first one that I remember seeing in theaters. And just to have a quick, quick, funny side note about that, Power actually went out in the middle of the movie when I was watching it in theaters. Uh, so I got a free movie ticket to go see another movie after that. So I have a great association with this film. Do you remember what you used the free ticket for? Maybe I went and rewatched it. I don't know. Um, but the power did come back on. And what I remember from this movie, and we'll talk about whether that actually translates to this new experience watching it is I thought that the worlds were really awesome. So Kashyyyk, Utapa, I think those were really great planets. Some of my favorites, if not my favorites from the prequels. I also really, really loved General Grievous, uh, I, which I think holds true. It's his quick stint with four lightsabers and spinning them around is something that we haven't really seen in the prequels. And uh, I mean, I guess we'll see if we ever see something like that again in any of the other Star Wars movies. But those are the two things that stood out in my mind, mainly because they were different, right? You know, they were something different than we hadn't really seen because of course, as great as so many other parts of the movie is, those parts like Ewan McGregor, uh, and, and the whole world of Star Wars, of course, the lore of Star Wars and and Palpatine, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all things that we were getting in other movies and we'll probably get in movies to come. And so those two or three standout things is, is what I remembered to be the most striking. And I'll wait to say whether or not those are still the most striking things about the film. Yeah, so <laughs> as far as what I remember, um, this is not really something substantive, but... Um, I remember this was the first PG-13 movie that I ever saw in theaters because they made it PG-13 uh, for, you know, disturbing scenes or whatever. And so, of course, my mom was very, like, hesitant to even let me go watch it. But uh, I was such a big Star Wars fan at that point that it was like there was going to be no stopping me. Um, and so she, like, went online to one of those websites and read about the movie and was like, OK, there's two parts I want you to look away at. And, and <laughs> one of them was when Mace Windu gets thrown out of the window. Um, and the other one was when Anakin's face burns off at the end um, in the lava. And so she, I, she was fine with you watching his body parts get removed. 
but just the face burning was bad. Yeah, I'm not sure how much she actually knew about the extent of that scene, but you know, I was an obedient child, so I did look away. And actually, this is wow. the first first time I ever saw those scene. No, I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> wait, you don't still look away? Your mom's so disappointed in you. For some reason, that is my my main uh, memory of this film. Uh, but of course, I did see it in theaters. Um, and yeah, okay, so let's yeah, well, go. No, for, so I should say one thing, and the thing yeah. that I, I didn't. I, I don't know why I didn't mention this first, but the thing, of course, you remember the most is that climactic lightsaber scene between sure. between Anakin and Obi Wan. It's over. Uh, I have the high ground. Yeah, exactly. And I just think, I mean, one, it's a lightsaber. It's a prolonged lightsaber battle, so like way more prolonged than the other lightsaber battles that we get in the series so far in the prequel trilogy. And I also think the concept, and you know, we talk about choreography in movies like John Wick, etc., from this year on on our main podcast. And I think that the choreography of this particular lightsaber scene, how they're going through different environments, even on Mustafar, I think is, is really exceptional. And it, it, I think it's probably the best choreographed, like maybe not your favorite or, or the best one, but the best choreographed uh, lightsaber fight that, that we get uh, in the prequels. Yeah. Once again, Anakin proving to be very dumb in a lightsaber fight, but uh, we'll talk about that later. Arrogant um, is the word I'm looking for. I think let's, let's go to our rookie now, Jay, what were your general impressions and takeaways from this uh, conclusion to the prequel trilogy? Hey guys. Um, I actually really enjoyed that one. Not that I you know, didn't generally enjoy the first two, but I think this one definitely sits cut above the other two. And I think it was the first one that I ended and was immediately like, you know, oh, I really want to watch the next one now. But, you know, obviously didn't for the sake of preserving uh, my role in this podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, you touched on a lot of the high points already. And, you know, I, I found the movie quite enjoyable. I didn't, you know, find myself poking at quite as many, uh, you know, like errors in logic or plot holes even. You know, it was overall, I think, a really good movie. Yeah, um, Scott, your general impressions. Yeah, I think my general impressions mostly uh, re remain the same from what I what I was talking about as for what I was remembering it for. I love the environments in this movie. I think that we've talked about how some of the planets are the best parts of some of the, of some of the other prequel movies. I think for me, the planets are the best of the prequel trilogy. I love Kashyyyk. I love. Uh, I love Mustafar, and I do love Utapal probably most of all. I think it's such a cool concept and design. A lot of times, I think your Star Wars uh, movies and, and the, the environments and planets are, are stereotyped or archetyped or prototyped into being one thing, right? Like, of course, Mustafar is the lava planet. Kashyyyk is the forest planet. But Utapal is this weird thing where you're not really sure what it is. It's like the canyon planet? I don't know what you call it. But I think the design is super cool. You have these ravines. They have different like layers and levels, and it goes all the way down into these kind of pools or springs at the bottom. Very cool design, and it makes for an, a different kind of chasing. You got, you know, we have the Attack of the Clones chasing starting out with the hovercrafts going through Coruscant, and you get this chase scene on uh, a bike. And I don't even know what the animal is called. We'll have to call up Alex Damon to tell us what the animal is called <laughs> that Obi Wan rides. But um, yeah, I think that that plan in particular really, really sits with me well and, and i wish we got to see more of it we get it for only probably a couple handfuls of minutes on screen but really enjoyable from a from a planet perspective i think the performances are overall stronger in this one than the other movies as well i mean ewan mcgregor is just doing the lord's work in the prequel trilogy staying consistent and and being ewan mcgregor but i think we see a notable uptick in performance from hayden christensen which 
is a low bar from the, from the previous movie, but I think that you can say maybe he's given a little bit more to work with, but certainly he what he has to work with, he does a little bit better with in this one until maybe towards the end of the movie where he falls off a cliff, but well, not literally, but, but well, almost literally. <laughs> almost literally falls off a cliff, but his performance, I think, drops substantially in the last half hour of the movie. Uh, being a Sith doesn't do so well for his performances, it seems like. But, you know, that those two main performances, of course, Natalie Portman, a little bit less screen time. I just don't find her character uh, that interesting in this movie, maybe because I think after you watch Attack of the Clones, you just kind of roll your eyes and like, clearly I have no way to like empathize or level with you because you ended up marrying <laughs> this guy. <laughs> so that that's its own problem. I don't know. That's a separate thing. But you know, getting to see more of Yoda, one of the things we, we, you know, we briefly touched on the lightsaber duel between Obi-Wan and Anakin. And I think an underrated uh, element of, of the climax of the movie is, is getting to see Yoda against Palpatine, you know, bouncing around in the Senate, in the Senate room uh, across all the different little pods. I think that's a really cool scene and a good follow-up to getting to see a glimpse of Yoda in Attack of the Clones when he faced off against Count Dooku briefly. But yeah, overall, those are probably the biggest highlights for me. Yeah, so this movie is definitely a step up from Attack of the Clones. Um, that, you know, that's what I expected going into it, and it, it certainly holds true, I think. Um, I'm probably a little bit cooler than both of you on it, just because I think that the second half of the movie, um, which, you know, again, this whole prequel trilogy, the most important arc in the whole prequel trilogy is about Anakin um, and his turn to the dark side and, you know, becoming Darth Vader. Um, and... I just didn't find the actual transformation once we get it to be very satisfying. Um, and a lot of that does have to do with Hayden Christensen's performance. Um, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the cast, but um, yeah, I think he starts off fine. I mean, I think actually the scene with Padme where she tells him that she's pregnant, I thought he did actually a pretty nice job in that scene with like his reaction um, and the way that he played the scene. But down the stretch, it really goes off the rails. Um, I think that there are, so so the action was something that um, was better than I remembered. Like my memory of this movie was that I thought it was just basically nonstop lightsaber battles. And that w is not really the case. I mean, we do get some major lightsaber battles. Obviously we have Obi-Wan fighting Grievous. We have um, Palpatine and uh, Mace Windu. And then we have that final uh, showdown between uh, Anakin and uh, Obi-Wan. We have Yoda fighting the Emperor for a little bit as well. Um, and so, you know, there there are, you know, more than in the previous movies, but it wasn't like wall-to-wall uh, -wall action. There's, there's definitely plenty of story here. And I was interested more this time and thinking a little bit critically, at least as much as you can uh, in a Star Wars movie about um, Anakin and his turn to the dark side. And one thing I do want to talk about a little towards the end, maybe uh uh, is Anakin's transition and maybe a uh, controversial uh, question, but was Anakin right uh, to turn to the dark side? Because I think um, that there might be an argument to be made there, uh, or at least I'll try to make some semblance of an argument uh, when we get to that point. But uh, overall, it's a solid movie. You know, they did what they needed to do to um, conclude the prequel trilogy. Um, and mainly, I'm just excited that we're getting to the good stuff now. Um, so without further ado, why don't we get into the cast? Um, then, you know, most of the cast, pretty much all the cast is the same from, uh, Attack of the Clones, obviously, um, Ewan McGregor, uh, Hayden Christensen, Natalie Portman, 
Uh, Christopher Lee is back. Ian McDermott, of course, is Palpatine. Um, are there any performances that stand out, uh, you know, that haven't stood out before or stood out for different reasons this time? Um, and maybe also we could talk a little bit more about the Palpatine performance by McDermott, because I think uh, he obviously fa factors a lot more into this movie than the previous movies. Uh, we'll start with Jay. Sure. Um, to kind of take a slightly new route, uh, I'll go ahead and praise McDermott for his role as Palpatine. I thought it, it felt a little, it's not that he previously felt like one dimensional per se, but it was very much just like, I'm suspicious of you because you're just playing this like, oh, this, you know, I'm this person who's just doing what needs to be done and yada, yada. But, you know, he, he certainly felt like a lot more menacing right out the gate. Um, you know, obviously like knowing what you know, you know, that kind of, you know, at, like colors your vision of him, but still it was, you know, the way he was like, kind of like luring Anakin in, like, you know, I, I really enjoyed kind of watching him, you know, manipulate him like that. Scott, how about you? Yeah, I, I think that in terms of new cast, I think you got to say Peter Mayhew is the real standout as Chewbacca <laughs> in his one minute on screen. Uh, no. It was a nice tease. <laughs> it's a great, well, yeah, it's a great tease. What a guy. No, I think, I think Jay probably hit the nail on the head for people who stood out that were different. You know, Hayden Christensen had the chance to stand out, I think. You know, he had such a strong, you know, first half, two-thirds of the movie for me. And it was a little disappointing at the end to the point where it didn't – I wouldn't say – I wouldn't go as far to say that it ruined the performance for me. But it just made me – you know, it, it brought me back down a little bit because I was, I, was really, I was really into it. And, you know, you talked about thinking – when you originally – you know, when you were thinking about what you remembered about the movie, that there were so many lights here about battles nonstop. Well, I don't remember Hayden Christensen's performance being so much better in Revenge of the Sith. And then was pleasantly surprised when I when I did think that was the case for a large portion of the movie. Otherwise, though, I, I think Jay gets it right. Like, if we're not going to talk about Ewan McGregor being Ewan McGregor, being Obi Wan, being the guy, then I think that uh, you know all things probably point to Ian McDermott as as Palpatine because not because his performance is any different, but because you just get a lot more of it. He takes a more central role. He's no longer this lurking Sith Lord in the background. He very much takes the forefront. He's more explicitly and clearly trying to manipulate the people around him to get exactly what he wants. And, you know, you could be forgiven if, if story really rushes you along into originally like questioning Palpatine as, as the emperor, or I guess the head of the Senate. Uh, and then also, of course, the connection to being a Sith Lord. I think that it's not, it's not a secret, of course, in the previous movies that he was, but I just think from a narrative perspective, it's one of those things where you have the Jedi who are particularly, um, I, I guess, uh, skeptical of Palpatine's intentions and, and who Palpatine is. But at the same time, you don't always see that development on screen. And I, I think that that often creates so, some interesting scenes with between Palpatine and, I guess, specifically Anakin. And I think that Palpatine, or I should sorry, uh, McDermott does a good job of, of doing the best he can with his, with what he has and with that reality of maybe an underdeveloped narrative arc there between why the Jedi are distrustful or, or even, you know, and vice versa, right? That, but he does, he does a good job, even if I still think some of the scenes are a little bit off-putting from, from that perspective. But overall, the cast is still solid. It feels like there are fewer cast members to juggle in this one because Natalie Portman mm -hmm. takes, a, takes a step back in this. But that being said, Palpatine takes a step forward. Uh, we also probably like lose a lot of bodies in this film pretty quickly. I mean, you have Dooku dying in the opening, in the opening sequence. Um, Do it. So. <laughs> Maybe I don't feel good about the this. Palpatine line. <laughs> yeah. 
do it. Um, that was wrong. Yeah, so we've praised McGregor a lot, and I think rightfully so, because he is, you know, pretty consistent, pretty, pretty good, probably the best performance across the three of these movies. But I do want to say that I think that his performance in one particular scene, that being the scene where he sees the hologram of Anakin killing the younglings, I thought he was completely wooden in that scene. Um, like, no real sort of emotional reaction whatsoever, which, you know, if Anakin is his, like his brother, which, he, you know, he claims in the in the final fight, then, you know, there's got to be more there. And, like, I think he delivers in the final battle scene with the emotion. But, like, where is it during that first scene? I, I don't know. I just thought that uh, it was a very, very wooden, very bland um, reaction to some news that should have just, you know, shocked his world. Um yeah, I, you know, I, I've thought a lot about that scene because I my initial response to that was something similar to yours, and I'm not gonna defend him too hard in this. In this, I don't think, but I will take up his defense and say that I think it's one of those things where he already knew what he was gonna see in the video, and part of being a Jedi is you have to like let go of everything that's going to like blind you or like strike you with emotion and so it didn't totally surprise me that that was the performance that was delivered again i would have liked a little bit more i mean i don't yeah. i don't think that the translation of what i was just saying is completely wooden delivery of what should be an extremely emotional moment for obi-wan and he does deliver and I, I think a perfect counterpoint is that he does deliver that emotion later on at least to some extent in the, in that scene when you know he's realizing he's gonna have to kill anakin and yeah, no, but but I just want to say that I, I found a lot of the dogma of the Jedi to be like releasing your emotions, things like that. Yeah. To just be, I mean, a little, we can maybe talk about that later if was Anakin right to, to go to the dark side. But I think that the, that dogma is weird. And I can understand, I think, if that what if that were the argument, say, uh, of, you know, George Lucas or Ewan McGregor on why, why deliver that line or that moment that way. I, I wonder if that would be one of their defenses. Yeah. Um, as for Christensen, I think, it, it's hard to say that he really improved that much for me, honestly, because I think the ending, like he just, it, the, the ending sequence of this movie is like probably his worst acting in all of the movies um, in, or in both of the movies. I think that um, he just cannot convincingly portray emotion. And that is all that Anakin is going through at this point in the movie is just emotional turmoil about Padme, about, you know, that he's turned to the dark side towards Obi-Wan. Um, and it just becomes like, he's just like a foaming at the mouth child practically in some of these scenes. And certainly the script doesn't help him out. I think we get, you know, the all time worst line in star Wars when he says, love won't save you, Padme. Only my new powers can do that. Um, not great, Bob, but, uh, so, so I, you know, I, I just didn't, I didn't love the performance overall, even though I started out feeling okay about it. Uh, I, I do think he, uh, he let me down in the end, but, um, you know, that is that, um, as for McDermott, I think he does do a solid job. I think he definitely hams it up for sure, but it's a star Wars movie. And like you said, Scott, I think that no one was really under really any false impressions about who this character was coming into the movie. Like we knew he was the emperor. Jay, even you who had not seen a Star Wars movie before, even during Phantom Menace, during episode one, you were already starting to catch on to Palpatine's, um, you know, that that he was the emperor. So I don't think that uh, there's really any need for him to sort of hide what's up 
Um, and but I but I do like what you know seeing these moments of aggression like popping out more often, like like the do it moment, um, or um, you know the classic line when he says. I am the Senate um, when when Mace Windu comes to arrest him. Um, yeah, so so I think he does a good job. And uh, the way that he's sort of like gaslighting Anakin, um, I, I, he he uh, he he gives a nice performance. And um, I, I, I understood I believed that Anakin would be swayed uh, by what Palpatine was telling him, because I think Palpatine uh, really preys on the emotions um, and the, you know, the turmoil that Anakin is going through. All right, guys, let's talk about those action sequences then, because I think we do get a few more here than in your previous movies, particularly those lightsaber battles. Uh, you know, we start with a nice like air battle, um, dog fight. Uh, then we have Dooku getting killed. Um, we have all those lightsaber battles I mentioned. Um, we have some a bunch of Jedi getting killed during the execution of Order 66. Um, Jay, we'll start with you again. What stood out for you about these action sequences? Sure. I mean, I, like you said, it felt like there were just more of them. And to me, especially, you know, as the movie went later on, like it just seemed to kind of up the intensity for me. So we start with, I mean, the, the where I started to really, you know, get into them was uh, the one on Utapa where Obi-Wan fights General Grievous. And the moment those four lightsabers came out, like I actually like, sh I was like, kind of like slumped on my couch a little bit and I like, shot up. Um, it was so cool. I was not expecting that in the slightest. Um, <clears throat> and that scene had been, you know, like led into it also like one of my favorite lines in the movie, which was like, you know, there is no war here unless you brought it with you. And then this happens. And I was like, Oh, that's amazing. Um, and order 66, of course, like again, having no conception that that was going to happen, like just completely shook me. I was, I, it was like, wow, like this got really dark, really fast. Um, yeah, it just became a genocide movie. You know, why not? <laughs> right. Although now I do know why everyone keeps asking the honest trailer guy to say execute order 66 in his like deep voice. Like, <laughs> I, I get that reference now. Um, and then lastly, you know, you guys have already touched on the last battle uh, on Mustafar, but again, like, you know, that was really prolonged, but like, you know, I didn't feel like the intent, the emotional intensity behind it as well as, you know, the like, you know, well-scripted like hand-to-hand -hand combat. Right. I will say that about the grievous scene, I think that, it's cool uh, for sure, but it's so short. Like he pulls out his four lightsabers and you're like, oh crap, this guy's like a big threat. And then Obi-Wan kills him in that scene. And it's like, Obi-Wan well, doesn't it, kill him in that scene though. That's not true. Well, when does he die then? They have this whole chase through the different levels. Okay. And well, then... but you know what I mean? Like he, it's really just like one sequence where he really gets to show off. Um, it, it's hard to, say that anything happens in one scene because we have so many cuts um yeah but i'm saying there's an entire chase it's not just that he doesn't i know die. i know what you mean but yeah. um but it just does it does feel a little bit like a waste i understand that they probably had to do it because of the rule of two right so you got to get anakin in there as darth vader um so you got to get rid of grievous who i mean i guess was he technically a sith i mean it's he was he was like a droid who was trained in the ways of the i don't think he sith. was technically a sith okay. i think well, i mean then, dooku dooku was the I mean, yeah, he, he dies, but, um, but yeah, well, but, I don't think Grievous replaced Duke because that, okay. that, that was something that already existed. That right. Right. Thing. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I asked, but, uh, so I, maybe they didn't have to get rid of him, but like, it does feel like a little bit of a waste, um, to, to have such a cool character, kind of like with Darth Maul in Phantom Menace, right? Like he is, you know, this cool looking Sith, Sith Lord with a double bladed lightsaber, uh, and he gets one line in the whole movie and then, you know, 
presumably is killed at the end by Obi-Wan. So um, I think this series does have a bit of a villain problem in the prequels. Um, but uh, luckily, I think I heard the uh, villain improves in the second. In, in, yeah, I think the, the remedy improve. I I think that uh, this problem is remedied in the movies to come. But um, so I was I was a little bit disappointed with that grievous scene. But I think the other scenes are effective. Um, the yeah, the Mustafar scene. It's not just about like the lava, the volcano. You know, they're running across platforms and uh, jumping and uh, dueling with each other the whole way. There's some really cool action that happens in that scene um i love that like there's just some like crazy like stylish action moments in this movie that happen really for no reason other than that they look cool like when anakin first arrives on mustafar and he like kills all of the droids in that one room and he starts off with like a behind the back kill i was like that is completely pointless but like it looks really cool and there's another moment i forget who it i think maybe it's obi-wan like early in the movie or something where like his lightsaber's on the ground and he like uses the force, like grabs the lightsaber, jumps in like one motion and like kills everyone. And it looks really cool. So uh, they did they did some nice little uh, stylish, uh, stylish techniques with the action uh, that I think maybe didn't add anything substantively, but they look cool. Uh, and that's that's part of it, too. So, Scott, how about your thoughts on the action sequences? Yeah, see, I'm not negative at all on anything about Utapa. We'll just we'll just have to agree to disagree on that one. I'm a huge fan of that scene. I I, I do hear what you're saying about wanting more because Grievous is such a cool concept yeah. and such a cool character and and has so much more potential than they than they ultimately execute on. But I think you can say that about Darth Maul too, which I know is one of your favorite lightsaber scenes from from the movie. I mean, you essentially only get one major scene with him, and then and then he unfortunately uh, goes by the wayside as well. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I just think that I because I love Yudapa so much and I love General Grievous so much, that wedding of the two things, and, and of course Ewan McGregor is there, that it, it just is like the perfect combination for me. I, because we've gotten so many, just to be honest, like we've gotten so many good lightsaber battles in the prequel trilogy, I think that the one with Count Dooku at the beginning of the film is l- less impactful because of it being a lightsaber duel and more impactful, of course, for what happens at the end of the scene when you know Anakin beheads Dooku and starts to take instruction for the first time from Palpatine. And then in that sense, that scene is a little bit less interesting. And I think that that the one on Utapa that we get here and then the kind of dual battle at the at the end between Anakin and Obi-Wan and Yoda and Palpatine are the ones that stand out. I think it's always really striking, uh, even if the battle itself wasn't that interesting, when you have... Samuel L. Jackson, Ian McDermott go briefly head to head and you see Palpatine's red lightsaber for the first time. Uh, that there's just, even though it's not the first time you see a red lightsaber in the movie because you see Dooku's from earlier, but it every single time I watch the movie, I go, ooh, because his his actual lightsaber um, handle is different. It's black and gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really cool there. I, I really like that lightsaber uh, reveal there because you mean at this point everyone knows that he is the Sith Lord, but you're not sure whether he's just you know hanging out with a lightsaber in his office. And I think it's a really cool reveal, even if the fight scene is underwhelming relative to the theatrics that you get in in a lot of the other ones, including the one that we've talked probably the least about so far. And that is that's the one between Yoda and and Palpatine later on. I think that you get a lot more use of the Force in that one. Palpatine, big Force user. <laughs> and uh, th- throwing the pods, I think, is really cool. And then yeah, yeah, just yeah. getting to see Yoda in action more, I think, is always really enjoyable. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because for some reason it slipped my mind. But that's like the best action sequence to me in the movie. Like, I love it. Does remind me a little bit of the 
the Darth Maul battle more than anything in this movie. Like the setting of it is just really cool being there in the Senate room. And like you said, the throwing all of the pods, whatever you call them, um, at uh, Yoda. I thought that that was a, a, a really cool sequence. And they're like, you know, they're so proficient with the lightsaber that they're just like going crazy in some of these scenes, like dueling with each other. And um, yeah. so I, I really liked that um, battle in particular. Um, Scott, you've talked a lot about uh, your love for Utapau, um, which is one of the new planets that we get to see in this movie. Um, Kashyyyk is another one. Uh, Yoda is hanging out on there early in the movie with some of the Wookiees. Um, and we also get Mustafar, of course, where the, that final battle is. We get a glimpse of some others during that Order 66 sequence. Kind of a shame we don't get to see more of like Felucia or like Polis Massa, some of these like really cool planets um, that uh, we only get like two seconds of just because, you know, a, a particular Jedi is from there and gets killed there. Giati um, Mundi, I can't remember the other one. but Yeah, Isla yeah, Sakura is the one from Felucia. But, um, yep. Jay, we'll go to you. What uh, of these locations, of these new locations that we get, did anything stand out in particular to you, or did you just enjoy uh, experiencing all of them? Yeah, I will say my my attention to detail on these is definitely a little bit lower than your guys's. I'm you know very much going to enjoy doing a rewatch of this series when we're done. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, I'd be remiss to criticize anything about you to power, right, Scott Shelton? Um, no, I mean I actually you know really did enjoy that and uh, that and I think Mustafar are the two that will stand out. Uh, you know, the most, you know, not I mean, probably in large part because of what was going on there. Um, like, I don't really remember that much about Kashyyyk other than that, you know, it was kind of like foresty. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope I'm not making any enemies out there by saying this, but, you know, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'll, uh, you know, appreciate seeing like more and more, but in terms of like the detail, even when you guys are, you know, like name dropping planets that were in the Order 66 scene, I'm just there's no reason. There's like, no oh, reason that you boy. should know that. Yeah, yeah. There's no reason yeah. that you should know those planet names. I'm pretty, I don't know. I can't speak for Scott, but the only reason that I know those planet names is because Star Wars Battlefront 2. That might be what it is. I'm not sure um, where I picked up the knowledge at, at some point, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, they don't mention the names of the planet, I don't think, at any point in the movie. So I don't think like, they, they mentioned the first name of Palpatine at any point in the movie. You just know that from research. Oh, yeah, yeah, that may be true as well. Um, I, I will say, Jay, that no matter what you say about Star Wars, you're going to make enemies, so you might as well just be honest. Um, that's just yeah. the way the Star Wars community is. But um, Scott, do you have anything to add as far as the planets? Now, I, I'm thinking back right now, and we'll see if this changes. Of course, we have seven more movies to do after this. But I think that this might, with the exception of Rogue One, in my opinion, I think this might be my favorite, you know, from start to finish, all the planets we get in the film. I think this might be my favorite one. Uh, Utapa, I think, like, I've talked about it already, so I don't want to go back over too many things I've already said. But I just think it's it's this really great planet where the design is incredible, and it's not just the kind of archetype planet it's not like Kashyyyk which is the forest to your point Jay it's not you know it's not Mustafar where it's lava it's not Tatooine the desert planet you know you have these archetypes throughout the series and I think Utapah is something different and something really cool and really interesting and that's what I love so much about it uh for Kashyyyk one of the things that I like about it isn't necessarily that it's uh, a forest planet although I think it does create some interesting visuals I really love the the action scenes where you the, the design of that particular of that particular battle we get on Kashyyyk with them coming you know, with the droid army coming on these like little boats towards the shore and then they're like i don't know like dive bombing the the malmos you know jumping from ship from like hovercrafts and ships onto the thing attaching detonators and then jumping off into the water to blow them up i think it's a really cool design so that, that maybe more so than the planet itself i really enjoy and you know i have a great love for the wookie 
So uh, I, I, it holds a special place in my heart. And then Mustafar, they do such a great job w- with that planet because on its surface, maybe not actually that interesting of a planet, but when you actually, when they do what they do with that planet, when they when they give the that lightsaber battle at the end and have a really cool choreography for it, and that they really do, they really do make the most out of it. I think, and so that's you know, even if the on the surface, I, I on the surface, I think that some of the the planets are some of the most interesting of the series. But when you do more with what they had going on with the planets, that's where it kind of cements itself for me as as some of the best locations we get in the series. Yeah, no, I don't have too much to add. I like, I think that's a good point about Utapau that one of the things that makes it cool is that it can't be easily pigeonholed like some of these other planets. Um, I think Mustafar is, you know, good for the battle that we get there. Um, but for me, you know, the the best planets or my, my couple of favorite planets are still to come in the Star Wars series. So um, looking forward to that. But yeah, these are these are solid new locales, I think. But OK, at this point, I think we can turn to the plot and maybe we can start our discussion about um, was Anakin right? Um, and I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, some of my thoughts on this, which are that, um, you know, a lot of the, the two motivations for what Anakin does, I think, are. Number one, he wants to protect his family, most of all. Um, and, you know, he has these visions of Padme dying and childbirth, which, of course, do come true. But, um, you know, at the time, he believes that turning to the dark side um, is the thing which is going to help save Padme. So uh, it's hard to fault him, I guess, in that motivation. I also think that the Jedi do behave somewhat ridiculously in the way that they treat Anakin. Um, you know, he is on the council uh, he's not a Jedi Master yet, but, um, you know, they seem to have a lack of trust in him that I don't know is necessarily warranted. Particularly, I think that Mace Windu, in the scene when Anakin goes to him and says that, you know, Palpatine is conspiring. Palpatine's a Sith Lord, you know, Alex Palpatine. Um, and Mace Windu's like, I'm going to go arrest him. And Anakin's like, all right, I'm coming with you. And Mace Windu's like, no, like... I don't trust you or something like I don't remember exactly what it is he says, but like he doesn't let Anakin come with him to um, to help arrest Palpatine. And I just don't get that. Like this guy just came to you and like told you this whole theory and like that Palpatine is a Sith Lord. Why would you not want more backup um, like going in there security? Why would you not want another Jedi? Why would you have instead? He brings all these like guys who literally die within five seconds, like of the fight when the fight starts between him and the emperor. Um, it's ridiculous. And he could have easily had Anakin in there. Um, and I just think that, um, there was no reason for him to not trust Anakin when Anakin just came to him with this, you know, he just said it, the emperor was a Sith Lord. Like that's not really something that he would, uh, lie about. I don't think, um, so that, that bothered me a little bit. And I, th- I just think that w- the way that the Jedi are treading so cautiously with Anakin, I think at this point, yeah, like if Palpatine comes along and is, you know, is making Anakin feel like, um, you know, he's important and he is powerful and, uh, you know, he's deserving of more respect than the Jedi would give him. Like, I think I get why Anakin gives in and, uh, you know, just the way that he's treated by the Jedi, um, did bother me a little bit into this. I, it, you know, I, I don't know that, um, I think maybe it was Anakin, right. is probably a simplistic way of looking at it. Um, but do we understand Anakin's transition? Maybe is the better question. And I think I do. Jay, we'll go to you. What do you think about this? 
You know, I, I agree that I think the Jedi are a little bit ridiculous in some of the ways they act. And yeah, I mean, Anakin was probably a little bit right. You know, how, how much, I don't know, like on one hand, how, you know, how much do you like, you know, trust the words of a guy who had his face melted off. But on the other hand, like, you know, 99.99% of all Jedi are dead now. You know, and I think, you know, there's a fair amount of arrogance on both sides. And I don't know. I mean, ultimately, the simple answer is like, no, he's not right. It's more complicated than that. But I'm not 100% sure that it is because, you know, the the Jedi aren't, they don't really seem, I don't want to say they don't seem complicated per se, but everything just seems very black and white, you know, unnecessarily so. I, I don't think that's a mischaracterization of, you know, the way they've kind of been treating a lot of things, including him. You know, I, I think the closest we get to, you know, them kind of maybe putting him in the gray is that scene between Mace Windu and him when Windu says, like, you know, if you are right about this, like, you will have earned my trust. Like, that is the one moment where I feel like, all right, we're in the gray for like a hot second where it's like, all right, maybe we can trust you. But everything else just feels very, you know, like crystal clear cut and unnecessarily so. Scott, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that was the one thing that I was going to point out that Jay just just talked about, uh, you know, Mace Windu saying to Anakin that, you know, stay stay here at the Jedi Temple, let me handle it, and if what you say is true and and we deal with the situation, then, you know, you, you'll have earned my trust. Because Mace is, to your point, Scott, absolutely incredibly distrustful of Anakin to a weird extent. Now, maybe you can say that you understand there's there's some logic behind the distrust, how close he is, really close to the Chancellor, which is, you know, especially when you have the Chancellor interfering in Jedi business. That's something that it makes sense why Mace Windu, who's maybe the most territorial of, of the Jedi on the Council, doesn't like Palpatine trying to work his way into Jedi business and, and make Jedi business his own. They don't like that. They like that separation of power, so to speak. And so because of that, it seems that Anakin not only is being kind of placed on the council at the request of the chancellor, but then also seems to have a closer relationship to the chancellor than he does to other, you know, other Jedi, with the exception maybe, of course, of Obi-Wan. But at the same time, I think in the background, I think that's not really explored that well. And one of the things that just boggles my mind, honestly, throughout the entire, you know, first half, two thirds of the movie, is just like, no one knows that Anakin and Padme are together. Like, and I think that that's like one thing that I well, think Obi Wan does know, right? Like, we find that out towards the end that Obi Wan kind of knew all along. I don't think that that's true, though. I don't think that he knew all along. I think that he puts like two and two together when Padme tries to like defend Anakin and just, I don't know, but I think that's ambiguous. At the very yeah, least, okay. I think that that's ambiguous and left up, uh, left up for your own um, intuiting. But I, I think that the key thing, though, is that I think that there's a missed opportunity to help explain the distrust of some other members of the council, whether it be Yoda, whether it be Mace, et cetera, about like this kid is lying about, you know, one of the key Jedi principles that he's supposed to be following in this training. And they know that Palpatine is, is a deceptive figure. They know that he lies. They don't trust Palpatine. It wouldn't surprise, like for assuming because he also lies, it also has a lot of stuff going on in the background that he's trying to hide. And so it just surprises me a little bit that that doesn't get used more to help explain um, why they're distrustful of Anakin, that maybe they can't get a read on him, what it is. I think it's crazy that they can't figure out that he and Padme are together. Uh, obviously, I don't know how the Force works, and maybe neither does George Lucas. But <laughs> I think that it's it's a it's an opportunity there to help explain why that distrust exists. And they don't really seem to go down that path to explain it that way, which is a little bit surprising. 
Because when you just look at what you have on the surface here with Revenge of the Sith, Scott, I don't think you're totally off base in saying that you can understand why Anakin to some extent would go to the dark side. You know, would you in the same situation do that or would I do that? Maybe not, right? I think there's there's plenty of arguments to betray the Jedi and go to the Sith or stick with the Jedi, right? Like he's deeply afraid of losing Padme. He's just deeply insecure about losing family members in general after what happens in Attack of the Clones with him losing his mom. And so you can understand that really deep-seated fear of him losing the thing that he cares most about in the world. I mean, something that he cares more about than than being a Jedi, than being a force wielder, things like that. And so that's obviously a really powerful emotion. But at the same time, you know, you have this person who's asking you to go against your moral code pretty consistently, you know, killing Count Dooku, uh, spying on the Jedi Council. He just has put it into your point from earlier, Scott, he's just put in this situation where Palpatine is able to prey on all of his fears and all of his weaknesses and really focus on the, the questions that he has about the Jedi as a whole. And he gets isolated by being kind of the representative of Palpatine and having to spend so much time with Palpatine. And that only works, of course, in Palpatine's favor. And he's able to exploit those weaknesses. And so by the end of it, you can definitely construct an argument and understand how Anakin gets there, even if you know wish things had been different. If uh, you know maybe he just stuck to his moral code more, if he'd just been around Obi Wan more, if he was allowed to go to Utapa with uh, with Obi Wan, maybe things would have been different. Yeah, no, it, it it is interesting to think about. You know, to your earlier point about how the Jedi are like supposed to refrain from showing a lot of emotion and stuff. I think it is a little bit like petty for them to like get their feelings hurt by the fact that Anakin is hanging out with Palpatine more than them. Um, and I know that there's more to it than that, but I think that um, that that is that does seem a little inconsistent with uh, the Jedi mentality to be jealous or something of of the fact that Anakin is giving more attention to Palpatine. The, the Jedi behave a little irrationally here. Obviously, they are right to suspect Palpatine in the end, but. Uh, I don't know that Anakin's association with Palpatine is necessarily something that would give me as much pause as it gives the Jedi. So that that's my only take on it. I think the issue, maybe it's more complex than we're, you know, giving it credit for. Maybe it's more simple than we're giving it credit for, because at the end of the day, it is a George Lucas written Star Wars movie. So uh, I'm not sure how much you can really dive beneath the surface. But uh, one thing I do want to talk about before we wrap up is the final sequence of scenes that we get after the battle between Anakin and Obi-Wan, uh, which I think might be like my favorite mi minutes in the prequels. Um, the, the things that we get setting up uh, the next trilogy that we're going to see. So we see Anakin getting the Darth Vader mask lowered onto him and, you know, the emperor sort of officially uh, designating him as his ap apprentice. Um, we see this scene between um, Obi-Wan and Yoda, uh, where Yoda is talking about how uh, he's going to teach Obi-Wan a lot of stuff and, you know, maybe how he can get in touch with Qui-Gon, um, which is interesting. Um, and then we get, of course, the, the fate of uh, Anakin and Padme's children. Padme dies in childbirth. Um, we see that Leia gets adopted by uh, Bail Organa and his uh, wife. Um, and then we see, finally, uh, Luke getting taken to uh, Tatooine, where uh, he is taken in by Owen and Beru Lars. And that final shot, wonderful final shot um, of them standing on Tatooine with the baby, looking off into the distance as the sun comes up, um, really setting the scene. And, uh, you know, I've joked that um, it's it's uh, setting the scene because we finally made it through the prequels and now we're getting to the good stuff. Uh, but 
you know, all jokes aside in the context of the movie, it does work for me really well um, as uh, a nice cherry on top of a not always satisfying trilogy, but um, you know, that they move the story along, they got the story to where it needs to be, um, you know, for the original trilogy to make sense. Um, and so I appreciated that a lot. Uh, Jay, what did you think about this uh, sequence of scenes at the end? And obviously, not knowing as much about what's to come, uh, you know, what are your takeaways from this? Sure, yeah, I mean, there was a lot packed into there. And to me, it, it kind of felt like we were at this point of like, okay, everything we wanted to show you has happened. And now let's just kind of bridge the gap between you know, the uh, end of the last fight scene and, you know, where we pick up in, I guess, the next trilogy. Um, you know, a lot packed into there. I don't know. I, I kind of, I mean, I guess, what am I trying to say? I was, the the lowering of the mask and, you know, Vader kind of rising scene was really cool, but I almost, you know, wish there was a little more. Like, I don't know. I mean, a guy did just, you know, have his, like, what, lower half chopped off and he had just melted. So, you know, maybe he wasn't in a position to do too much more other than just fall and yell no. Um, which, I mean, that part was, you know, I guess kind of cool. But I don't know. I, I expected a little bit more, like, anger, menace. But I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm talking in circles now. It did really make sense that, you know, he, you know, primarily was focused on Padme. I guess there was still some good left in him, you know, kind of like she said. Um, tying this I don't all know. Is together, there? It's a I, question I that we'll be asking ourselves later on, I'd imagine. I'm, I'm sure. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd imagine so, you know, just given the setup. But again, like, what do I know? Um, I do fear the worst is yet to come. Again, though, I don't know too much about, you know, the later movies. I think one of them is called The Last Jedi. So, you know, can't, can't imagine the few survivors are, you know, looking all that good. But, you know, we'll see. I, I will say like... Wow, you're, doing, you're, you're doing a lot with a, with a little there, I think, on your assumptions. I mean, I think I'm, I'm just excited to see what comes next. Like I said, you know, I, you know, really want to, you know, start the next trilogy. And I think this did a really good job, those last few scenes, like setting me up, you know, with excitement for what's to come. Yeah, it's basically a super cut of some like really cool stuff at the end. And yeah. I don't know, you could say that maybe they could have done more with those scenes, but they work well of course that you have you have to have Padme dying in childbirth and I, and I think that it is really it's really fitting that the death in childbirth is you know a lack of a will to live anymore I think that that is a really nice way to close that loop about this you know this great fear that Anakin had you know by trying to save Padme he's the one that has kind of essentially forced her to give up on living it's a little bit of a weird thing if you really think about it. I mean, she's bringing two kids into the world, but apparently just doesn't care enough to live anymore. But, you know, it, it's a fitting into that arc, I think, where Anakin has done everything that he can over the course of the film to prevent that fear, that dream from happening. And it's, in fact, the exact course that he went down that ultimately led led to that reality coming true. You know, when it comes to the scene with Darth Vader, I mean, it's so cool. It, it really is. Maybe it's because having seen the original trilogy already, maybe it adds an additional appreciation. But that dark, that you know, the Darth Vader design is just such a, it's such a cool design and to see that get put together in front of you on screen works out really well. Jay, I definitely hear what you're saying about how it's kind of weird that he just kind of come like rips off this metal board and then like falls to his knees and screams. But you have to remember, you know, to your point exactly, he had his like, he does he have any arms left does he have any legs left like he he is is doing his best with the mechanical body that he's given and so one of the things that you'll see 
and I don't really view this as too much of a spoiler, but like his movements are really clunky intentionally for, you know, even the original, throughout the original trilogy, right? He's a big, you know, very imposing figure and you get that immediately. I think that's immediately noticeable when he, when he rips off the kind of medical board that he does. He's, he, Hayden Christensen is, seemed like a, maybe he was a tall guy. I honestly never really thought about it, but Darth Vader is Darth Vader. I mean, such a imposing figure. And they set that tone immediately for what you're going to get throughout the original trilogy for that. So I think they do a good job there. And then Scott, the final point there around the scene on Tatooine is beautiful scene. Uh, all I can say about that in terms of Ewan McGregor, uh, maybe being able to converse and train with Qui-Gon We'll see what comes true in that Ewan McGregor Star Wars Disney Plus series, which we may have to reconvene the podcast squad for that when that comes <laughs> out. And maybe even The Mandalorian, even sooner than that. So. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I will certainly be watching all of those things. So, um, Okay, guys, let's move into the wrap-up phase for this movie, but also for the prequels. Uh, Jay, we'll start with you. Who's your First of all, who's your MVP for this movie, for Revenge of the Sith? And then who is your overall MVP for the prequels? Sure. I think I'll give the MVP of the movie to Ian McDermott, you know, just to switch it up a little bit. Um, You know, does a great job, you know, kind of like you said, coming out of the shadows, being a little more on the forefront, present. Um, But MVP of the series, I mean, it's Ian uh, Ian McGregor, without a question in my mind. You know, I really enjoyed uh, his performances. And, you know, I do, again, like, you know, read the news quote unquote like i do know he has a disney plus series coming out I and mean, you guys just talked about it and i'm you know really excited to see what more we get on there yeah scott how about you yeah for me for the sake of being different um i think i'm going to say the mvp of this movie is general grievous i think he's such a cool such a cool concept such a cool design you know i think we can all say that we'd love to have seen more to seen more of him but you know that sequence on Utapa was really satisfying for me. I didn't mention this earlier, but I do think it's a bit weird that you can just like rip open his metal body and shoot his heart. Like why did they give yeah. a droid a heart? It's a very strange design. Yes. Um, but I still I still was left really satisfied by that entire sequence and, and think Grievous is a really a really great concept and, and something different than we get in the rest of the prequel when it comes to especially people who wield lightsabers. And honestly for the rest of the series, like you're not gonna see you're not gonna see droids anymore or we're not gonna see battle droids. Uh, anymore uh, for the for the rest of the series, and I will say, speaking of droids, things that I think we, we haven't talked very much about, but I promise you will come up uh, later in the series because I'm an absolute fanboy of one droid in, in particular later on. But R two D two R four, they just don't we just don't give that we haven't given yeah. the droids much love. C3PO. They're not really they're not really in the movies that much. They're certainly not as much as they are in the original trilogy. Yeah, I mean, we're going to start seeing them more in the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to that because I had forgotten that the droids aren't in there as much and they certainly uh, are not the stars of the show. But I do like the sequence uh, kind of at the end of the battle. Or, or I shouldn't say not. So in the space battle, I do. I, I did want to pour one out for R4. I felt bad for him getting ripped off by like the... Is it the Vulture? Not, not the Vulture droids. I can't remember what they're called. But... Uh, yeah, he gets ripped off. And then R2-D2 in, in the uh, lobby, he's like, he's doing his best, Master. <laughs> <laughs> I think is uh, is really funny. But uh, MVP of the series, it's really hard to go any direction other than Ewan McGregor. But for the sake of being different, this is not a character. But I do think lightsaber battles are the MVPs uh, of the prequel trilogy. 
definitely better than the original trilogy from what I remember that might change on a rewatch and the sequel trilogy, you just get something very different with lightsaber battles, I think, which is a good thing. So I think from like traditional action focused battle sequences, I think that it's really, really great. Uh, and they probably are the stars of the shows across the entire trilogy. Yeah. Um, this is tough. Y'all have taken some good ones. Uh, I think I'd probably agree that, um, that Ian McDermott as Palpatine is the MVP of this movie. I'm not sure that there's another, there's a natural, uh, another direction for me to go um, with, you know, his character in this movie. I think uh, what he's allowed to do uh, more screen time and he makes the most of it. So he's the MVP here. Uh, as for MVP of the whole prequel trilogy, I really want to say Qui-Gon, even though he's only in one movie. But I'll go with Yoda um, because he does play an important part in all three of the movies. Um, he gets two lightsaber battles. You know, he gets one at the end of Attack of the Clones. He gets one in uh, Revenge of the Sith. Um, he, you know, he plays an important role as the super wise Jedi master that, um, you know, kind of always knows what the right decision is. Um, and I like seeing him in this setting um, with the Jedi Council because we see him in a different setting, um, no spoilers really, but we see him in a slightly different setting in some of the original trilogy. Um, so I like uh, I like seeing him in the setting, and I'll I'll give the MVP to him. Yeah, and he also looks he's not a, he's not a sock puppet in this one. So. Yeah, that is true. Um, okay, guys, uh, final order of business here. Let's put a score on Revenge of the Sith, and then I want to hear your rankings for the prequels. Uh, Jay, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, like I said, I think this one sits, sits cut above the rest. And although my rankings have been, you know, slightly inconsistent with yours, I think, you know, I'm hoping we'll land a little bit closer on this one. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give Revenge of the Sith an 8.4 out of 10. Over to you, Scott. 7.3. Yeah, I'm going with a 6.5. I think that um, there is, you know, there are moments to really like in this movie, uh, but I am still unsatisfied with the back half, the Anakin's transition to Darth Vader, um, needed better scripting, needed better acting. Um, and yeah, it just kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth in the end. And I, I will say we, we really did dwell on the positives for all, I think all the right reasons, because there's a lot of, of things to really sure. like about this movie, but I make, I've made this joke on multiple letterbox reviews now, but I'm so exhausted of George Lucas's like love poems that he drug out of a drawer and like gave to pat like gave yeah. to natalie portman to read to to hayden christensen it, they're atrocious they are so bad and, whenever they like say affectionate things to each other and once again the editing is really bad in this movie just like the constant uh wiping away to another scene often when we're in the middle of uh you know a, a big action sequence um less criminal know, than than the work. stuff on camino and the, yeah the i think clones, that's probably but, the worst example but still yeah. um it's not great. So I'm going with the 6.5. It's solid. Um, but, you know, I, I think there is at least one better movie in the trilogy. Uh, but, Jay, I think I know what your rankings are going to be. But uh, let's let's hear your how you rank the prequel trilogy. Sure. So I had Revenge of the Sith as the best movie, uh, followed by Phantom Menace, very closely followed by Attack of the Clones. All right, Scott, how about you? Yeah, you're going to get the same the same rankings from me. I think that Revenge of the Sith does beat out uh, the Phantom Menace for me. But I think the Phantom Menace is closer to Revenge of the Sith probably than it is to Attack of the Clones for me, unlike Jay. I think that the things that I like about these two movies, about 
Revenge of the Sith and the Phantom Menace are a little bit different. I think that that's one of the things that makes it for me a, like a little bit more difficult because it's not like, Oh, this thing does this, this part of it does a little bit better than the other movie. They just are doing very different things. Like my favorite parts of the Phantom Menace, I think are very different than my favorite parts from attack or sorry, from Revenge of the Sith. And uh, they're ultimately, I think in that way, almost a little bit difficult to compare, but I, Revenge of the Sith does, does beat it out for me. Uh, yeah, so I think y'all know where I'm going to come out on this as well. But uh, I would say if I had to describe the gap between the movies, I would Phantom Menace definitely at the top. Then there is a fairly significant gap. Uh, and then I would put Revenge of the Sith. And then there is another fairly significant gap. Uh, and I would put uh, Attack of the Clones in a chasm at the bottom um, just because uh, I think there's little redeeming value that I could find on the rewatch of that movie. But um you know, another, another significant gap can be the name of our next podcast. <laughs> I'm happy to say that Phantom Menace still remains my favorite. I'm happy to say that Revenge of the Sith was definitely better than I remembered. Um, and I'll say nothing more about Attack of the Clones. But um, I, I still think Phantom Menace is a great movie. And, uh, you know, I, I wish y'all were y'all were bigger fans, but uh, at least y'all didn't have it at the bottom of the list. So. Honestly, the most egregious part about this film is that they thought it was okay to show two cameos of Jar Jar. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, Why? <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, we, we had to know where he ended up. But uh, yeah, so that should just about do it uh, for this Revenge of the Sith episode uh, of the Star Wars Countdown podcast here from Some Like It Scott. We hope you have enjoyed uh, this episode. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Um, even if you choose not to support us, we hope you will rate, review, subscribe, do all the things on your podcast app of choice. Um, and we hope you will check out our other podcasts as well. Champs Lunch, um, on which we break down the Schmodown and Some Like It, Scott, uh, our weekly movie review podcast. Um, we have some great stuff coming for the end of the year uh, on Some Like It, Scott. Uh, and you can find all those right here in the feed where you found uh, this episode of Star Wars Countdown. So thanks for listening. Uh, we hope you'll be back next time when we will talk about the original Star Wars, Episode 4, A New Hope. Um, but until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.